Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a study in the book of Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, The Search for Meaning. We're learning that chasing after satisfaction apart from God will leave us empty. Thanks for joining us. Keep this in mind. The teacher was considered wise, and he taught the people everything he knew. The words of the wise are like cattle prods, painful but helpful. Their collected sayings are like a nail-studded stick with which a shepherd drives the sheep. That's the whole story. Here now is my final conclusion. Fear God and obey his commands, for this is everyone's duty. God will judge us with everything we do, including every secret thing, whether good or bad. I thought as as we've entered into this Advent season, and uh, as we're waiting for Christmas, and at the same time we're closing this series on Ecclesiastes called Unsatisfied, I would show you a short video. It's about two minutes, 20 seconds long. The video is titled, Kids Hate Their Christmas Presents. So you can watch this video. In our house, what that looks like is one of our kids opening a present. I have three boys, and so they open a present, and they already have it, and so grandma and grandpa are sitting there, and they say, Dad, I already have that present. And they don't think they can be heard, but they're unsatisfied with it, right? Those kids were unsatisfied, and that's funny. Not even Christmas gifts can satisfy us. Not even Christmas gifts can satisfy our kids, but we all believe this, right? We grow up, and the toys just get bigger. Hmm. And things get a little more important. And we believe satisfaction can be found in what we do or what we acquire or what we drink or who we're in a relationship with. We all do it. We all look for satisfaction apart from God. And that's why this series in Ecclesiastes has been so relevant to our lives. So today we come to the last week in a series called Unsatisfied a study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we've seen that Solomon observes the world he lives in, and he asks honest questions, questions we sometimes don't want to ask, and he takes us places we sometimes don't want to go. And if you're following in your notes, Solomon asks hard questions to push us to have a deeper faith to push us to have a deeper faith. We've, we've used the word goad over the course of the past three months. It's, it's this cattle prod that Steve was talking about. It pokes the animal to move them into making a decision. And the writer of this book has goaded us to a place where we see that apart from Christ, this life under the sun is meaningless and leaves us unsatisfied. So as we close the series, I want to invite you to open your Bibles one last time to the book of Ecclesiastes. If you are getting used to your Bible, Ecclesiastes is just past the Psalms, Proverbs. If you don't own a Bible, you didn't bring it, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. I highly encourage you, please take one of those out and follow along. It it would benefit you to see where we're going and what we're reading. We're in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 9 in the Black Bibles. It can be found on page 547, 547. 
I actually want us to begin today by reading uh, verse 8, which is found in the first gray box in the notes. This is where Jeff left off last week, but I think it sets the context for the conclusion of the book. So let's read this together in the first gray box. Meaningless, 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 says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. This is what we've heard each week. The book of Ecclesiastes ends the same way it began, by using the word hevel. Hevel. If you're following in your notes, hevel is the Hebrew word for meaningless. For meaningless. It's this idea of empty or futile, fleeting as a breath, a mist or a vapor. Here one day, and then it's gone. And I've got to tell you, as one of the pastors of this church, the book begins and ends with Hevel, but I think we're different now. I think it means something different to us than it meant the first week. Something significant has happened in our church as we've walked through Ecclesiastes. This book has done something to us, so when we hear verse 8, it strikes us with much greater force that things aren't meaningless. And so I was talking to a a friend of mine who was in a bad motorcycle accident this fall. I was actually driving my son home on a Wednesday night from youth group, and we saw this guy laying in the road right after the accident happened. We began to pray for the guy. We didn't know who it was. Came to find out it was our friend. He had a broken pelvis, a broken back and other injuries, and he, he has recovered from that. But I met up with him, and I said, man, How are you doing physically? And he explained things. I said, what about your bike? He said, well, I had that bike for 42 years. I even had it fixed up one time after another accident. I loved that bike. And he said, but it's Hevel. It's Hevel. And in his own words, he said, I realize that my relationship with Christ is what's important. That's just a motorcycle. It's done something to us. It's it's constantly reminded us that life without God is meaningless. We've been goaded to see that there's little joy under the sun if we try to leave our creator out of our lives. And so we come to verse 9 this morning, the end of the book. We come to verse 9, and something fascinating happens. You're going to notice this as we begin to read it together. Something changes in verse 9, and the teacher, Solomon, is now referred to in the third person. I don't know if this is Solomon just changing the tone he's writing in, or somebody new stepping in to say, I'm going to conclude this. It doesn't honestly matter who's writing it, but what the writer is saying is, this is what it's all about. Something changes here. It brings us home. So beginning in verse 9, you can follow along in your Bible. We read, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. And so there's, there's two things that these verses show us. One is that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And, and two, I want to show us how to read these words of the Bible in the Old Testament. So these words were not just thrown together. Solomon didn't just throw them together. He arranged them carefully. And what this shows us is the Bible is the inspired word of God. 
The Bible is the inspired word of God. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, you can see it on the screen. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. All of the Bible. And so when we sat down to discern what book of the Bible God might want us to teach this fall, he, he led us to Ecclesiastes. There's no doubt about that. And as I read through Ecclesiastes for the first time in a few years, I'm almost embarrassed to admit it, but this thought went through my mind as I read it. I thought to myself, God, are you sure Ecclesiastes should be in the Bible? I mean, it, it's so dark and depressing. And at first glance, you're like, what is this about? And then God prompted me to remember that everything in the Bible is there for a reason. God has it there for a reason. It's not just thrown together. And it's not just the stuff we like. Maybe it's even the stuff we don't like that God will use to teach and rebuke and correct us and train us. So this is the inspired word of God we've been studying. And then if you look at the end of verse 11 again, it says, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Given by one shepherd. So we just saw that the Bible's the inspired word of God, but I want to talk about how we read the Bible, especially the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament. It is part of our sacred scriptures, but I never read the Old Testament without Jesus. I never read it without Jesus. One author says this. I thought this was so good. He says, Jesus is my sponsor for admission to the Old Testament. Why else would a Gentile read ancient Jewish scriptures? I don't read the law and the prophets by the light of Moses and Elijah. I read the law and the prophets in the light of Christ. So when I read the Old Testament, when I read Ecclesiastes and I come across the word shepherd, it is popping for me that in John 10, 10, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. Jesus is our sponsor for the Old Testament. When we read the Old Testament, when we read Ecclesiastes, we are pointed to Christ. I, I used to uh, teach the kids downstairs for five years. I love doing that, and I, I do miss it. One thing I particularly miss about being in a worship service with the kids is almost every week, because I love repetition, I'd say, um, how many books in the Bible are there? And they'd all say, 66. And I'd say, how many stories in the Bible are there? And they'd all say, one. And I'd say, who does every story point to? And they'd scream, Jesus. I want kids from an early age to know that every story in the Bible points to Christ. And as we read Ecclesiastes, these words take on even greater meaning when we see the word shepherd, that our shepherd is also our Savior who laid down his life for his sheep. So Jesus is the one, ultimately, who calls us away from the hevel and the meaningless of life under the sun. We'll see that even more clearly in just a few minutes. But as we read this, and anytime you read the Old Testament, how does it point us to Christ? So continuing in verse 12, we can read, if you're following in your Bibles, be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the soul. And all he's saying here is if you're looking for wisdom, which wisdom by definition in the Bible is knowing the difference between right and wrong, if you are looking for wisdom, then go to God and go to his word. 
Go to God, go to his word. So many times I, I want to pick up the latest book by an author who's written on a certain subject or listen to a podcast or go to another church and listen to a message that somebody's given online. And that's not a bad thing. But if we want wisdom, we need to remember that God is the ultimate giver of wisdom. And this writer is saying, you can exhaust yourselves by reading everything under the sun. But if you want wisdom, go to God and go to his word. You'll find it. He's the giver of it. So with, with that kind of setting the context and an introduction to where we are to wrap up the book, we get to verse 13. 13 weeks we've spent on this Three months we've spent on this, and this is what it all comes down to. Solomon says, this is it. This is what life's all about. This is wisdom. This is where you'll find satisfaction. So would you read verse 13 and 14 with me in the second grade box on your notes? This is it, friends. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So if you're following in your notes, fearing God and keeping his commands is the only way to find satisfaction in life. Fearing God and keeping his commands is the only way to find satisfaction in his life. Fear God and keep his commands. That's what we take with us as we close the book of Ecclesiastes. Fear God and keep his commands. Would you say that with me one time? Fear God and keep his commands. And here's what I want to say about that. Listen close and lean in. Everything, everything in life begins and ends, rises and falls, succeeds or fails based on our fear of God. Everything. Everything. And some of us, we're, we're in this room and we're like, man, the, when I hear fear of God, I, I think this means cowering to God. He's big brother watching over us. He's going to pounce on me when I mess up. And that is terrifying to me as well. And some of you grew up with fathers, and, and, and you are fearful. You were fearful that your father would hurt you, and that's the picture you have of God. And so you're here today, and you're wrestling with who this God is, and your only imagination for him is that he's vengeful and out to get you, and if that is who God is, then I'm out. I'm out. I don't want that. And others in this room, you have no fear of God. None at all. You're living by your own rules. You live for this temporary life under the sun. You live for work. You live for sex or the addiction that you can't get yourself out of. Some of you are living this way. And as I thought about this, I think there's two different types of people that live with no fear of God. One of them is the person that lives with no fear of God and you're actually doing very good. Life is pretty good for you. You are successful at work. Your marriage may even look like it's working. The sin is fun. But there's this nagging feeling that there's something more or something's missing or I'm going to get caught. And then there's the second group of people who have no fear of God and nothing makes sense to you and you are miserable with life. It's not working for you. 
Life is one decision after another where you repeatedly say, I'll never do that again, and then the next Friday or Saturday night, you do the same thing again. And you are riddled with shame and guilt. And so in a room this size, we're all across the board on what we think of when we hear fear God. So I want to spend a few minutes together trying to paint a picture of what fear God means. If it's the only way to find satisfaction in life, we better know what it means. So what I want to do, I began to look in different books this week for definitions of what fear God means, and I started listening to different podcasts and uh, then going to different messages that other pastors had given, and God like stopped me and said, why don't you just go to my word where you find wisdom, and I'll show you what fear God means. So I, I want to give you an imagination for what fear God means. I'm going to give you six characteristics of what the Bible says about fear God, and then we'll try to put it into a definition. So if you're following along in your notes, the first characteristic I want to share with you of what fear God means is the fear of God is the knowledge of God himself. It's the knowledge of God himself. In Proverbs chapter 2, verse 5, I just want to read this off my notes for you. It says, When you look to the Lord for wisdom, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. The fear of the Lord is the knowledge of God himself. It means we allow God to be in his proper place. And we put ourselves in our proper place and our fears and hopes and dreams and agendas in their proper place. It's a recognition that God is the creator and author of life and we belong to him. I love what Jeff said last week. Fear of God is an acknowledgement that life is temporary and we are accountable to the one who made us. The fear of God is a knowledge of God himself. The second picture of the fear of God, if you're following along your notes, it's reverent awe of God and his word. It's reverent awe. The, the word fear can actually mean fear. It really can. It, it can mean fear, but it also means reverent awe or silent wonder. And upon acknowledging God for who he is, it leads us to stand in awe. Have you ever noticed what happens to everybody in the Bible who comes face to face with the Lord or in the presence of the Lord? They hit the deck. Like they can't even stand in his presence. They are awestruck. And so fearing God, knowing who he is, the knowledge of God himself, leads us to being in awe of his greatness and his goodness and his love for us. It's a reverent awe that we have for God and his word. The third picture of fear of God we come across in the Bible. The fear of God is the key to knowledge and wisdom. It's the key to knowledge and wisdom. In, in Proverbs, we read two verses. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. And in Proverbs 9.10, we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So if wisdom is knowing the difference between right and wrong, you can either look to the world to find wisdom, or you can look to God and His Word to find wisdom. You can look to the world to find your morality, or you can look to God and His Word to find truth. 
And we will know when we're fearing God because we will live as wise people. And we'll ask questions like this. We'll filter decisions through questions like, well, what does God think about that? What does the Bible say about that? Man, if we could get to a place, church, where every decision we make is filtered through, well, what does God's word say about that? That is wise fear of the Lord living. That is a characteristic of fearing God. Here's the the fourth aspect of fear of God in the Bible. If you're following in your notes, number four, the fear of God is to hate sin and evil. It is to hate sin and evil. Proverbs 8.13 says this on the screen. All who fear the Lord will hate evil. Therefore, I hate pride and arrogance, corruption, and perverse speech. And so what the church has done historically is we've just looked outward and said, I hate evil and I hate sin and I hate you. But what this tells us is, man, this is first and foremost about our own selves. Like, let's look at ourselves and hate the sin that still lives in our flesh and that we're tempted by every day. We hate the pride and the arrogance we continually struggle with. We hate some of the things that come out of our mouths. We seek to be humble and hungry and hospitable people. And yes, we hate the sin and the evil in the world that leads to injustice and oppression that we've talked about in this book. Does what is going on in the world bother us? It should. Because if we fear God, we hate sin and we hate evil. It should bother us, but we've got to begin with our own selves. But an aspect of fearing God is to hate sin and evil. The fifth characteristic we see in the Bible, if you're following your notes, the fear of God leads to life. It leads to life. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 27, you can see this on the screen. It says, fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escape from the snares of death. And when we fear God, we recognize we can't save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to be good enough or earn the forgiveness of God. It's a recognition that we need a Savior And it's only by trusting in what Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection that we can live now and forever. And so the fear of God leads to life. And this is where the fear of God can actually mean fear. It it can. Have you ever had a healthy fear in your life that stopped you from doing something really dumb? Have you ever experienced that? I bet all of us can think of something right now. The fear of the Lord can stop us from making terrible decisions right now. And ultimately, the fear of the Lord can stop us from spending eternity without him. The fear of the Lord can lead us away from spiritual death. That's some healthy fear. It leads us to life. The fear of God leads to life. And the sixth characteristic, if you're following in your notes, the fear of God is our future hope. It's our future hope. The fear of God allows us to keep going when this world doesn't make sense. The fear of God gives us hope when we live in a culture where the only thing that matters is life under the sun. The fear of God gives us a bigger picture of life that is above the sun. I want to share with you Proverbs 23, verse 17 and 18 that shares this hope with us. It says, Do not let your heart envy sinners. 
Don't want what the world has, right? But always be zealous for the fear of the Lord. There is surely a future hope for you, and your hope will not be cut off. The fear of the Lord is our future hope. And so using the Bible, those six characteristics, to define the fear of God, here's my attempt at a definition. Would you read this with me? Fear God equals, read read this with me, a knowledge of, an attitude and respect toward, an agreement with, a trust in, submission to, dependence upon, and worship of the Lord. And when I use worship, I don't mean the singing and the music part of worship. I mean a whole life response to who God is. And so our, our message notes go to print on Thursday, sometimes Friday, if, if we're late. Um, and, and you always think, man, I wish I would have put something in those notes after they went to print. And so here's what I wish I would have put in those notes. It's like the cliff notes of what we just defined as the fear of God. So if you want to write this in under that, I would love for you to take this away. To fear God is to live our entire lives with God at the center of everything we do. To fear God is to live our entire lives with God at the center of everything we do. Our thoughts, our actions, our words, our attitudes. And that's why, if you're following in your notes, the fear of the Lord results in obedient living. The fear of the Lord results in obedient living. Otherwise, the fear of the Lord is a sham in our lives. Let me say that another way. If we don't live obediently, I'm not talking perfectly, erase that image from your mind. We're all going to be tempted. We're all going to give in to sin as long as we're in these bodies or until Jesus comes back. I'm talking about What are our desires? Do we desire to become more like Jesus? If we are habitually sinning and enjoying it, then we have reason to question whether we really follow Jesus or not, or whether we fear the Lord or not. Because the Bible tells us that you can no longer go on sinning. Once the Holy Spirit lives in you, you can no longer go on sinning and enjoy it. You will have these thoughts that bombard your mind that I'm not living in the way of Jesus. And if you're here and that is you, I get it, man. I get it. I lived like that when I was younger. I called myself a follower of Jesus, but I didn't live in obedience. Therefore, I didn't fear the Lord. Therefore, I'm not sure I was really a follower of Jesus. Obedience to the word of God follows naturally fearing God because it becomes the delight of our soul. We want to please him. You can't separate these If you fear the Lord, you're obedient. If you're obedient, you fear the Lord. They go together. And verse 14 concludes with a statement about judgment. If you're following along in your Bibles, we end Ecclesiastes with these words. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. The author ties verse 13 and 14 together because to fear God is to live with a constant deep belief that God sees and knows all and that we will give an account to him. So let me ask you a question. If you're following on your notes, how would I live if I believed God was watching everything? How would I live if I believed God was watching everything? Because 
sees it all and he knows it all. This is, this is the best I could come up with, right? Was I send Ben and Caleb every night, my two sons, to the bathroom to wash their hands and brush their teeth. And there are nights where the water goes on and no hands go under the water and no toothbrush gets wet. And they come out and they say, yep, we did it. We did it. And I respond to them. I mean, I know they're lying. And I say to them, guys, you can lie to me. God knows what the truth is, and you're going to be accountable for that. I hope I do that in a calling up and calling in way and not a vengeful way. I'm not out to get them. I just want them to know that the one who created them sees everything they do, and he will bring it to light. So let me say it again. I don't believe God is vengeful and just waiting for me to mess up, but, but... Friends, this can create a bit of healthy fear as well to recognize that the God of the universe, the God who made me and knows everything I do and say will hold me accountable for it. That's some healthy fear as well. Because the truth is one day, all of us will stand before God for judgment. And let me be clear here. If you are a follower of Jesus, he has kept the covenant for you. He has kept the covenant and he has paid the price for your sins and you are forgiven. He has taken the judgment that you deserved. And when you stand in his presence, God will look at you and see his very own son. But if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, when you die, you will stand before your creator and you will be judged based on everything you've ever done and everything you have ever said, and that is terrifying to me. Because the Bible tells us even our best is like filthy rags. There's nothing you can do to be good enough at your time of judgment. You will be sent away to spend eternity in isolation without God. That creates a bit of healthy fear as well. Fear God and keep his commands. And so as I I read this, I thought to myself, why does Ecclesiastes end with judgment? Like, why doesn't it end in verse 13? That's so good. Why does he go on to this judgment thing? And here's the deal. Here's why I think Ecclesiastes ends with judgment. If you're following on your notes, it's because everything matters. Everything matters. The book began and ends by saying that without God, there is no meaning or purpose to life. And he ends with judgment because if there is no God, then there is no judgment. And it's hard to see how anything we do here has any meaning at all. But if there is a God who will judge the world, then everything matters. Everything matters. And so the final message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters, but that everything does. What we do, how we do it, and why we do it all have eternal significance. In Christ and with Christ, everything has meaning. At the final judgment, it will matter how we spent our time. If we wasted it on foolish pleasures or we worked hard for the Lord. It will matter what we did with our money, whether we spent it on ourselves or invested it in the kingdom. It will matter what we did with our bodies, what our eyes saw, what our hands touched, what our mouths spoke. 
It will matter whether we choose to forgive or harbor resentment. It will matter whether we kept our wedding vows. It will matter what we did for the widow and the orphan. It will matter if we were hospitable to people not like us. And it will matter how we loved God and loved others. All of it matters. And the reason it matters, listen, the reason it matters is because it's the proof of whether we fear God and keep his commandments or not. It's the proof of it. A tree is known by its fruit. Will we fear him and keep his commands? Because at the day of judgment, everything matters. And what matters most then is what we do with Jesus. If it's true that God will bring everything to judgment, then it is desperately important for us to make sure that we'll be found right with God on that day. And the only way, the only way to be found right with God is to turn from our sins and our disorganized desires and proclaim with our mouths that we desire Jesus more than anything else. That we believe that he took our judgment that we deserve to die on the cross and he did it for us and that we believe on the third day he rose again and now the Holy Spirit lives in us and we can choose not to sin because of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we live lives then in such ways that we fear God and keep his commands. That's how we can be sure on that day. We fear God and we keep his commands. Did you know that's God's desire for every person that they would be saved? He would want nobody to perish. And that's our prayer for every person that walks in this room every Sunday. That you will fear God and keep his commands so that on the day of judgment, you will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. So Ecclesiastes, it's been asking us questions and questions and pushing us and goading us. And so I thought we'd end this book with a question. If you're following on your notes, then I ask you to keep these out in just a minute. I want you to, to do an exercise. How will I live in light of Ecclesiastes? How will I live in light of Ecclesiastes? And we're going to give you just a minute to name reality. Where are you in life? How is it going for you? Are you a non-believer and you're here? I'm thankful for that. You you are not here by accident. You are here because God wanted you here to hear the good news of Jesus, that he can give us meaning. But if you're a non-believer, then here's what I want to challenge you to do during the next several minutes. I just want you to name why you're not a believer. I mean, just go there and name it. Maybe you just don't believe, but you've never asked why I don't believe. Just name it and be honest with yourself and with God. Why don't I believe? What's holding me back? God will reveal that to you, and he'll answer that for you. But name it, and I just want to let you know, the one who created you loves you. And there is more to this life under the sun than what you're currently experiencing. There's a, a group of people here, and, and during this time, you claim to be a believer, but you don't fear God or keep his commands. And all you have to do to determine that is look at how you're living. There's a habit of sin in your life that you can't shake free of. It, it is riddling you with shame and guilt. And I, I encourage you right now during this time to name reality. That's where I am, God. He already knows. 
but he'll meet us where we really are. Repent from that and turn from that and ask him to help you. He will. And then there's a third group that you are followers of Jesus and you do fear him and you do keep his commands. And I want to encourage you, keep reminding yourself that everything matters. Everything you do matters. And live knowing that what you do here has eternal significance. And when life under the sun doesn't make sense, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. Everything matters. Remind yourself of the gospel every day. And so we want to give you just a minute to name where you are. Name reality. God will meet you. But don't let Ecclesiastes end without you making a decision of where you are. Solomon has pushed us here. So we give you this gift of a couple minutes. We asked our small groups this week ahead of time to name reality. What will they take from Ecclesiastes? How has it changed their lives? What does Solomon push them to? And so Zach and Jessica and Steve are going to share with you a few readings of how God has spoken to people in our church through this book. The Westminster Confession says that the primary goal of human life is to love God and enjoy Him forever. I believe that's what Solomon is telling us to do, to see each day and each moment as a gift from God's hand. I am so thankful that with Jesus Christ in my life, everything has meaning and purpose. He is in control of all things that enter my life, and He wastes nothing. I've learned that we can find joy in living our everyday lives with the everyday things God puts in front of us, acknowledging that it is He who has made provision. Joy is what we look for in this season, but it should be with us each and every day. Wisdom is to acknowledge and remember my Lord, and I remember Him. He knit me in my mother's womb. He called me to Himself. He did not abandon me when I chose a wrong path. He forgives me. He guides me back onto the right path. Though I will never understand why, I know he joyfully awaits my arrival into his presence. How could I possibly forget him? Life in this world isn't always logical nor fair. That was never promised. What is important is understanding that He is wise and just in all things, and we are promised to be in His presence forever. What freedom that brings. Joy is not the absence of sorrow, but the presence of God. There are things I cannot face alone. There is an enemy that is seeking to devour and destroy me, and I need the encouragement of the saints to support me. It's when I prize independence and privacy. It is pride. God made us in His image to do life together. My takeaway is that no joy compares to that of seeking God. Every other pleasure on earth has its limitations, but the joy found in seeking God will literally never end. For us, we have learned that everything apart from God is meaningless. 
We knew that before, but wow, it's been huge for us as we studied Ecclesiastes. Another takeaway, die a good death. Live with the end in mind. In everything we do, acknowledge God. So many awesome nuggets of truth. I searched and I searched and I searched and I searched, but I never seen no U-Haul behind no hearse. Ecclesiastes 5, 10, as interpreted by bluesman Cootie Stark. Success, as the world defines it, is here one day and gone the next. It only matters to the person experiencing it, but life happens one day at a time. There is enough work in each day and enough joy in each day to be sufficient. Trying to do more than that is a wasted effort and doesn't lead anywhere meaningful. Joy is God's gift that I can choose even when facing difficulties. At all times, always acknowledge God. There's a young lady in our church that wrote, I'm coming to the end of a long year. Professionally, I've been shouldering a workload that should have belonged to at least three people. I'm still on my own in a lot of ways with little hope of eminent relief. Personally, I just turned 35 and I'm still childless. There's no clear medical reason for this and we came to the end of our medical options more than a year ago. So another birthday has come and gone and we aren't any closer to having children. While what I've wanted this year was epiphanies and solutions, God has responded with quiet whispers and confounding peace. He has gently ministered to my battered and weary soul. And along the way I realized that is what I really needed more than the solutions I sought. It is a kindness and love that overwhelms my soul. What kind of God is this that stoops so low to heal my broken heart and wipe my tears? What kind of God answers all of my worries and trials with himself? My God. And though there is more pain in saying it than I ever thought possible, I want you to listen to this. I would rather have him than the answers I long for. I would rather have him than the answers I long for. So for now, I will struggle to work and enjoy what God has given me and leave what he has not given me in his hands. And so friends, we can read the Old Testament and we can read Ecclesiastes and have no hope or we can realize that the way we live this life everything matters. And so if I was downstairs, I would say to the kids right now, how many books are in the Bible? And you'd say 66. And I'd say, how many stories are in the Bible? And you'd say, and I'd say, how many, who does every story point to? Jesus. And so as we close this series, we want to sing one final song together that points us to Jesus. So let's stand. Let's sing together about Jesus.